reading this article on, I think it was like the Huffington Post or whatever, so take it for what it's worth, about the, the mullet theory of websites, where you've okay. got to have like a business public front, you know, that looks respectable and is very, yeah. very clean and orderly. And then, yeah. and the party in the back. Uh, so this is the party in the back of our two podcasts. So All right. I can appreciate that. <laughs> so I like anyway. that should be our tagline, man. Like the mullet of podcasts. <laughs> The mullet of sociological podcasting. Um, all right. Can you hear me all right? Because I've got this laptop essentially taped to my face. <laughs> <laughs> is it is it the same one again? This, yeah, it is. It is. The things I do for public sociology. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so basically you, uh, the, the NRC rankings, um, which everyone agrees are, are meaningless and horrible, had at least one big public impact. And that is that they, they brought Jeremy Freese out of blogging retirement. Well, I know. Isn't that lovely? Um, but, you know, I, I find that different emotions uh, move people to blog, and uh, anger is one of my prime movers for blogging. I mean, I think most people have heard of the U.S. News and World Report ranking. What's the deal with the NRC? Who, who are they? What, what, what is this ranking supposed to accomplish? Well, the National Research Council does a lot of actually good work in terms of providing a, a, a science arm for the, the federal government. They're affiliated with the National Academy of the Sciences. Um, and so, you know, they put out a lot of different kinds of reports um, with good methodology and taking on different kinds of public science projects. And in this case, they took on themselves the project of providing um, uh, information about graduate programs. And one of those, those pieces of information was to actually try to rank them. And... What's the ranking supposed to be, though? Like, is this? It would be. It would serve two two purposes. One is to imagine, you know, the graduate student out there who is, uh, or the prospective graduate student out there who's looking around at different programs and wanting some source of information that they could go to that would help them decide what program they should attend. And then the the other sort of audience for this would be university administrators here who hear a lot of things from their respective departments about how great they are but want some kind of standing that they can use to understand where they, the, you know, the programs that they're investing in rank relative to the rest of the, the field. Uh, so I guess, I mean, I guess we should ask, what made you so angry? Well, you know, so the way that it happened here at Northwestern, I don't know how it happened at Minnesota, is we got um, initial word a week in advance of only the numbers for Northwestern. So we didn't get how anybody else uh, had done in the rankings or any other information. Um, and so we basically just got information that would suggest that we had a problematic ranking, which, you know, I wondered about different sort of soul searching as to what might be the source of this, of this ranking and, and wondering how we were going to respond to it. Cause it looked like it was going to be something that was taken very seriously um, throughout the Academy. Uh, and then they come out and uh, you start to look at the methodology and it's so, obviously flawed um and to imagine it's so obviously flawed and, and obviously inferior to what someone could get just by walking and down and buying a copy of the u.s news and world report that it's amazing to think about all of the energy over five years that went into putting these rankings together it's so, a five-year so guess, process yeah the data were gathered five years ago but the data were gathered for me when i was a faculty member at wisconsin so during that time, I did a postdoc at Harvard and have been here. I'm in my fourth year here, and I'm chair, and still my numbers counted as a faculty member at Wisconsin. Oh, weird. 
Hmm. So, so if I'm a grad student, let's just let's just tell me how helpful. Or if I'm an undergrad, and and I and I uh, I really want to have a career where I mostly write books and I and I publish things on my own, um, and I have really bad quantitative GRE scores, but maybe strong in the other. Area. This this would not be a good ranking for me, right? No, this would this would not be a very helpful ranking for you. For that matter, if you're a graduate student who has some idea of what it is you'd like to do in graduate school, this ranking is not really very helpful for you. But if you are um, a student who has uh, no idea what you might be interested in studying, only that you want to study sociology. And it would help if you primarily wanted to write short pieces and you wanted to collaborate with large numbers of individuals and you had a great quantitative GRE score, then these are the rankings for you. Yeah, I, I, was, I was joking because uh, on, on uh, Scatterplot, your, one of your blog posts on this topic, you were pointing out that, uh, um, for those of you who haven't read it already, that Books aren't counted, so books aren't counted in citations. Neither are books citations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, so neither books books don't count at all. And as far as anybody can tell, citations for books don't count at all either. How does and that did, happen? Did they? Yeah, did they ever give a justification <laughs> for why like a book doesn't count, but like the eighteenth authorship on a paper does? Well, the the key distinction. I mean, they only made they they only did use two methodologies. They had a methodology for humanities, and they had a methodology for anything that was non-humanities. And sociology was considered non-humanities. So one could imagine fields in science where maybe books are more peripheral to intellectual production, but for a field like sociology, or for that matter, political science or anthropology where books are a central mode of production, and in fact, you have book departments and article departments and such, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I was going to say, it reminds me a lot of filling out uh, IRB forms, um, right. because even though they, they have like a social science IRB, it's clearly just a bastardized version of the medical one. Like Up until a couple years ago, I remember having to fill out a question about how you would determine if any of your subjects are pregnant and what you'll do about that. And I'm like, I'm interviewing people. I'm not going to start out by being like, so lady, you pregnant? Right, exactly, exactly. I mean, is there some kind of intrusive question that you could ask that would lead a woman to miscarry? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm that offensive sometimes. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess so. I mean, it, part of it then is has, has there been this kind of outcry about these rankings in other fields then, or is it just maybe a you know strange fact of sociology that we're a very diverse field in all of these respects? You know, other other disciplines are are disturbed. For instance, about how university uh, members are counted. Um, for instance, I've I've heard that in mathematics. Um, you know, mathematics doesn't have a lot of, of gender diversity, especially in top departments. Um, and so who you count as faculty members can actually make a big difference for how your gender diversity looks in math because um, while you're, you're less likely to have women in tenure line spots, you might have them in instructional capacities. And so if you count them, you look like you have a lot more gender diversity in math than you actually do. And different universities counted this in different ways, causing a problem. At least that's something I've heard. It seems like different disciplines have different things that they're upset about, but a lot of disciplines don't believe that these rankings very well reflect the quality of programs. But, like, these things matter. Like, everyone says how they don't matter, but then, um, you know, people tell, t still tend to be very worked up about them. You know, uh, like, I guess Christopher Newport University, right, has, who, who's hiring in sociology, I happen to notice this year. I, I have no idea. This is a school. This is an accredited university that you're talking about. Christopher Newport? I, I guess. I guess. I, 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 well, no offense, Can we get the name but, of this university one more time? 
Christopher Newport. I, it's it's Christopher Newport. Some guy with the university, for all I know. But um, awesome. yeah, it's some some for profit entrepreneur. No, I I don't I don't know the school of which you speak. It's amazing. It's amazing how new universities. I would have thought that my third fourth year as a faculty member, maybe I would have heard of all the schools from one third or another. But still, new universities. Uh, let's see. Well, uh, um, according to Wikipedia, there are a liberal arts university located in Newport News, Virginia. It was established in 1961 as a two-year college okay. or school of the College of William and Mary. It became a four-year college in 1971 and a university in 1992. Wow. So it's Christopher Newport, not like a name, but it's Newport because of Newport News and then Christopher for some other reason. I guess, yeah. I don't Sounds know. good. Or no, 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 no I could... Well, okay. Yeah, we I could bleep the name, the name. I think when we uh, but, <laughs> edit oh, this. But, but do they no, have you, a Division One football team? Is the question that everyone's they, really. They uh, absolutely do not. I would know if they had a Division One football team. <laughs> oh, but, but, but I have never term. heard a sports score for Christopher Newport. They're not even. They're not even a school that gets to play Division One football teams. I can assure you of that. Yeah. But, Although but I guess they have, a, they have a picture of some football players on their website now that I Oh, at. yeah, I got to go to their website. But, Sorry. John, <laughs> you started have, just have, years ago with an anecdote, right? Yeah, there's a they point have, to this, have, right? They have 4,800 uh, students. This is not, they're a much tinier. Anyway, uh, they're, they're in CAA Division Three, in the okay. South, oh, the South Athletic Conference. Game. Playing yeah. for the love of the game. But anyway, they apparently made news because they officially have in their requirements for new faculty hires, like certain that the institutions they come from must be within, you know, certain uh, parameters of U.S. news and NRC rankings. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Uh, it's, so it says new faculty hires need one of the following, a undergraduate degree from one of the top 99 national liberal arts colleges or the top 35 national universities in the U.S. news rankings. Da, 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 a few more. A terminal degree from a doctoral program ranked in the top 35% of National Research Council rankings. And, of course, they pressed them on the fact that, well, there is no top 35%. That's one of the problems with these <laughs> you know, rankings. And they said, oh, well, you know, we'll take that into account. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's, only, it's only interesting because they're, uh, they're formalizing it. They're actually saying we take this stuff seriously and, you know, this matters and, and how we hire people. But, uh, you know, people do pay attention to these rankings, both students when they're applying to places and, and faculty who can all sit around and complain about how worthless and, and worth ignoring they are. But then uh, it's all everyone talked about for like a week or two. Well, well I mean, I think the, the bigger thing that, that has uh, many of us concerned is that uh, university administrators pay attention to rankings. I mean, there's not a lot mm -hmm. of cues to status in uh, in these different fields. And, you know, for that matter, you make claims for resources against other other fields. I mean, we at Northwestern think of ourselves as uh, a top 10 program. Um, and we say that we're a top 10 program, and we tell administrators that we are a top 10 program. And so when rankings come out that have us in the 30s, uh, this is something that makes us very nervous. And then we look and we realize that the main mode of scholarly production of most of the people here isn't counted at all. It makes us very disturbed. But that's still a case we have to make. I mean, it's not, it's not the case that the, the problems with these rankings, if it's not for people specifically articulating them, uh, become aware to university administrators. That's a good point. So it's not even so much um, sort of the pecking order within and among sociologists, but that they matter within institutions. So if, you know, if, if this particular ranking really helped your economic, I'm making this up, economics and political science departments, and you come up really bad, that could affect the distribution of resources within your university. 
like right, regardless or wants to be told to be to have to hire people you know or to be encouraged towards hiring people that are going to improve your ranking in you know on this metric that's you interesting because i imagine you know like deans and administrators might not really know or care or understand what your department is known for in terms of research topic wise you know like oh you know we do very interesting research in this area but they probably do pay attention to the rankings because it's a concrete you know indicator of status like you said so if you're trying to bring in somebody and you say like you know this person studies such and such and that would be a great addition to the to the department it seems like you need to frame it in terms of well you know we have a great ranking right now we really want to preserve that great ranking um because i imagine that's how you have to strategize uh for resources right exactly exactly i mean just about every every university when they're deciding to prioritize research is tries to identify areas of strength and and build in those areas of strength for that matter in different departments i'm sure it's the same way at minnesota i mean there are identified areas of strength within a department and you invest in those areas of strength in other words it's it's a lot easier to make a reputation on the things that you're already good at than the things that you're not so good at right and like so- why invest in anthropology if they're a top 50 department but we're a top 10 sociology department exactly it's much easier to take a top 10 department and keep it top 10 than to move uh an anthropology department from 50th to 10th or some such yeah this kind of thing too is one of those one of those weird kind of like uh what's the term looking for like easy filters where that could totally justify people not actually thinking at all about something complex like it's just like using GRE scores or something to let grad students into a program. We know up and down that GRE scores correlate in no way with success in graduate programs. And in fact, in sociology, we have a whole field of people who study that. But we just conveniently ignore all that and cut all the kids with a bad GRE score. And I feel like this is kind of the same thing, too. Even though we all know these rankings don't really make any sense as soon as you look at them, like clearly there's going to be a number of people who use them as a way to establish these kind of rankings, even though they can probably easily understand that they're pretty much absolutely useless in that sense <laughs> well i don't know how is how are mine always the conversation killers no if that's I not I, I, actually I, I think that's that opens up a well it I goes mean, back to like if something's measurable even if it measures something badly the fact that there's a social need for a measurable outcome it outweighs the relevance of yeah. that measure outcome you know exactly. and that's like exactly the point i was trying to make the i mean it's the same thing with the GREs, you know or anything of yeah. like those to some extent right well, you hey, uh-oh he hung up on us you uh, offended him jesse jesse son of a bitch. <laughs> i was just gonna come in with an anecdote that christopher newport was actually the captain of the susan constant the largest of the three ships that settled jamestown the original english colony in america This will work now. Okay. Okay. Now we're all here. All right. I think we are. Jeremy, I was just about to hang up on Jesse too. It's okay. Okay. See, I'm not. I'm just that offense. That is the kind of thing I I do that causes stillborn babies. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think we concluded that Jeremy was blocking the Wi-Fi signal because his head's so close to the. <laughs> That's that my, must be it. That's my theory. <laughs> See, the other theory, you know, we were talking that Jesse was in Iraq for one of these episodes, and we think that you must have a worse uh, internet connection than he had in Iraq even, or something. I don't know. You know, I don't know what the the situation is with Northwestern Wireless. You know, we don't have a building. We're actually located in two houses, and so (laughs) Wi-Fi isn't quite as good. 
That's I was going to say that might be something to complain like to whoever is organizing such things that you need better Wi-Fi that you can get better Wi-Fi in hotels in Iraq. <laughs> Just saying. So uh, at, did, did you how how quickly did you cut out there? Did you hear because Jesse's Jesse was basically making a full frontal attack on all sorts of scores and rankings or numbers of any kind. Clearly, there's some insecurities <laughs> there that we should probe. Um, I had kick ass theory scores, but they have clearly not. But I am clearly a poor graduate student, and they have clearly not correlated. Um, But yeah, I don't really. I would probably argue with the the idea that GRE scores are worthless for evaluating um, graduate students. But you know, in the case of rankings, it's the the unfortunate thing is NRC actually did collect useful information. Um, but it gets buried under their effort to provide uh, an overall ranking a department. Yeah. And the fact that they came up with these numbers five years late. I mean, for instance, the awards per faculty member um, actually is probably a, a pretty decent metric of the, the average quality of, of faculty members, better than the, the publications information they provided. But, you know, by providing that information five years late, you end up with things like, you know, I won't say the particular departments, but there are some departments that are clearly benefiting from, um, you know, career achievement awards for faculty who are now either essentially retired or even deceased. So it's it's hard to, uh, you know, use imagine a, a, a new student using that information to choose what program to go to is pretty dubious. <laughs> I think they should organize some kind of death matches at the ASA where they can determine <laughs> which are the top, you know, departments, some kind of, you know, battle of the wits. Well, it, it's not like it's it's especially mysterious. I mean, you could just look at like what what places hire students from what other places, and or or some metric like that to get to get a sense of, or or where where people choose when they have choices as to where to go. I mean, if if one department uh, is able to hire people, uh, you know, essentially anyone of their choosing from another department, or at least has that idea that they could raid another department. But that other department couldn't raid them. Probably the department that's able to raid the other department's a better department. Mm. So you have all these sources of information, but they don't go into the NRC ranking. Mm. I just like to leave it with John's bemused. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm good at bemused. That's what I do. Never wanted to give away if he agrees, disagrees, or even is interested in what you're saying. John is always good with a stoic. Hmm. So you guys are going to move on to talking about culture of poverty, and I'm going to move on to whatever chair stuff I'm doing up here at the office. <laughs> All right, exactly. sounds like a plan. Thanks well, for thanks coming on. Yeah, it's great to have you. Yeah, I hope I don't get too distracted by looking at this Christopher Newport University website. <laughs> hey, uh, you missed my short bio of Christopher Newport during one of these uh, little blackouts. So you got a lot to learn and be surprised. So is it by. actually named after Christopher Newport? This is what I'm it, trying to figure out. Or it is, is it named it... after Christopher Newport, the commander of the largest of the three ships that first established the Jamestown colony. Oh, so the idea is that Newport News and such is also named after the same guy. They have a common I think that so. so. Oh, okay. That, that makes sense. Okay, well, you guys have a good diet. <laughs> All right, you too, man. Okay, bye-bye. So, the culture of poverty. Yeah, do we want to oh, talk about right, that? that whole mess. <clears throat> yeah. Chris, I thought you'd have some intelligent things to say about this. That's where you're wrong. 
so when I was at the American Sociological Association meetings in August, there was a, a high profile panel on the culture of poverty that was led by Michelle Lamont and Mario Louise Small. Um, Minnesota's own Teresa Gowan was speaking on it. And there were a couple of other people who uh, I can't remember at the moment. The, Michelle Lamont and Mario Louise Small had just put out a, an edition of the, what is it, the Annals of Political and Social Science or something like this that covered the culture of poverty. And they made a massive effort to send it to as many interested parties on Capitol Hill and in Washington, D.C. So they, they were going for having some sort of influence over the debate about the topic. So. And then since then, some news sources have picked up on it to the fact that it's being discussed again. Yeah, so. there was in that New York Times article maybe a week right. ago uh, that came out. Which was pretty interesting. Serious deficiencies, but uh, wasn't I'm Yeah, I'm, I agree with you both. There were, there were serious deficiencies, but it's always nice to see sociology in the news. And I know for a fact it was, it was below the fold on the front page, so that's pretty high profile. There were multiple sociologists cited in this article. I don't know if that's worth, uh, you know, harping on. But what what's the deficiencies of the articles in your guys' opinions? Go ahead, Jesse. Well, I was just gonna say. I mean, it, it sort of started as this, like, um, you know, the first. Who was the first person who used that? The conservative politician, or but uh, Oscar know. Lewis was the anthropologist. Yeah, right. But who made who gave it the weight? The, the Moynihan report. The Moynihan Report, yeah. There you yeah. go, there you go. Um, anyway, so it started, you know, it started like, oh, the Moynihan Report set off this whole cultural firestorm by arguing there's a culture of poverty, but now, you know, many, and then, you know, it became taboo in our PC age to talk about it, but now scholars are coming back to it. Um, and then and then it had these kind of bemused quotes from politicians who are like, oh, imagine that, culture affects these kind of things, you know. Um, but it was just like ignoring the fact that the Moynihan report and like contemporary sociologists use the like they both use the word culture, but that's pretty much where the similarities end. So I, I don't know. I mean, it just I think it was kind of comparing apples and cats. Um, but what do you mean to, to how anthropologists use the term or how Moynihan used the term? To how it was popularized. OK, right. But I mean, not like. I don't know that I'm tracing it to any particular thing, but in the sense that it became in the popular imagination, like what it meant, you know what I mean? Well, I think that like, the controversy is that they feel like the way he discussed it, it, it puts the blame on um, the individuals and it precludes yeah. any kind of structural reason why, um, you know, there's higher crime rates in poor African-American neighborhoods. And, you know, and it well, seemed like the article was arguing that, you know, even Monaghan like recognized that these behaviors came out of a particular context and that oppression and racism all contribute to this quote unquote culture of poverty. So I don't know, the way I read the New York Times articles made me feel like, oh, this is saying that sociologists for a long time felt like they couldn't touch upon culture because it, See, it signaled individualistic, you know, pathologies. Um, that's not really true, I don't think. From Moynihan, he kind of went back and forth on structural versus individual reasoning and, and he's i think he cited more with individual stuff but there were some structural elements to it but everything that followed in the wake and kind of took the idea and ran with it was extremely individualistic yeah that's what i was referring and to it especially focused on families in particular um female-headed families in specific and then especially poor black female-headed households which led into the whole welfare queen stereotype from the reagan era well that's that's the kind of 
the common perception of, of that report. But sociology right. seems they but seem sociology to think- didn't shy away from the notion of culture. They it's it's been pretty significant since then. It's just the connections between culture and some of the issues that were remnant from the Moynihan report may have gone. It was discussed a lot, but oh. discussed so as to not reiterate the same mistakes that Moynihan was said to have made or the people following in his wake. Yeah, because so there was tons of discussion, but it was all critical in the concept. Right. It's almost like people framed their ethnographies, urban ethnographies against, you know, right, a culture yeah. of poverty argument. Carol Stack and, and every urban ethnography since then, essentially. Right. It's interesting because, like, I've, I've been reading Teresa Gowan's new book, uh, Hobo's good plug. Slider. Good plug. Yeah. No, we'll be doing, a, I think, a Office Hours episode with her in a few weeks when I finish. Oh, the- really? Nice. Yeah. For those but, who can't wait, there's a really good inter- <laughs> an article on uh, Culture Shocks, the, the podcast. If you, if you Google co- Culture Shocks, I think it's the first thing. Barry Lynn's show. And it's good. You should go listen to it. Well, when, one of the early chapters, she's talking about this culture of poverty uh, issue. And she seems to kind of frame it as, you know, one of the things that came out of it is that ethnographies have not been apologetic per, per se, but they have as a consequence of this fear of you know, reifying this culture of poverty argument. She feels like ethnographers have have been very strategic in who they highlight in the urban landscape. And so she talks about this this tendency to like highlight moralistic behaviors uh, of the urban sure. poor, of like showing how what we see as dysfunction is really function. So, you know, the deviant is really not deviant, but he's really a hardworking American underneath. And, you know, the ethnography is about uncovering this and she says, you know, while that's probably true, you know, it, there are people out there who are having problems and are struggling, and so, you know, you don't want to just highlight how people are nonetheless practicing the virtues of hard work and individualism that we pride ourselves on. There are people who are doing other things in the urban landscape, and so as ethnographers, we have to uncover that as well. And then she says the other extreme is that people then try to admit that people are doing quote unquote deviant things, but that these deviant things are a reaction against a kind of unfair structure and i haven't gotten enough through the book because i think she's trying to kind of weave her ethnography as a middle ground position uh she's not trying to make people as saints or as necessarily kind of rebels against this neoliberal agenda um but as as their lived experience, you know, and, and let the chips fall wherever they may. At least that's how she set up the book so far of the first 50 pages that I've read. Um, so it was it's kind of interesting because that made me think like, you know, that's true. Like ethnographies, there is a, a danger of ethnographies like putting up these caricatures of what it means to be poor in an urban landscape. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, to what extent is that a reaction against this culture of poverty and what to what extent does it prevent us from talking about culture um but chris you feel like that's not really the case like we are talking about culture it just hasn't been talked explicitly in those terms there's been an explosion of, of discussion of culture since the time since moynihan since the 80s since the 90s several different waves of scholarship about culture the culture of poverty in specific i would agree has you know a lot of people talked about it but it was, it was always through critique and there were certain studies that came through over the time that it was being criticized that brought the entire debate back. You know, the first was Jensenism in the 70s and then the whole bell curve debate in the, was that the late 80s, early 90s, things that tried to suggest that maybe there was a pathological reason why people acted, certain people acted certain ways. 
but I don't think the concept of culture has suffered for any of those reasons or attention to the notion of culture. And I don't think it'd be fair to say that urban ethnography or the study of poverty or, or anything like that has suffered either. I think debates over the culture of poverty certainly influenced how people discussed it and, and organized their studies, but the work was still productive. There is a problem with a lot of people for lack of a better term, romanticizing the poor. Yeah, yeah, that's, I think it's, well, it seems like to simplify, there's like a romanticism and then there's like an exoticism of the poor, right? There's like the poor is these exotic, deviant subclass of people. And then there's the romantic vision of the poor as like hardworking, you know, archetypes of, you know, what it means to be American. Right. And, you know, it, you, uh, well, I don't think in sociology or most of the social sciences, there's been that poor as deviant freak notion. Um, it's I think it's mostly been the romanticized stuff. But I think the public opinion often goes back to the deviant freak notion. It's not so much that they're evil or bad people, but it's like, wow, look at these, you know, black stereotypes of people, you know, cussing and and. and explaining a certain for, uh, form of masculinity like you feel that sometimes that yeah gets that was ethnography in the 70s and the 80s yeah definitely right. the whole cool pose thing is one that i'm up on because i study hip-hop that the, you know all the stylistic aspects of black masculinity were originated in their resistance to you know u.s capitalism and oppression so from the way they stood to the way they dressed to the way they danced and so on and so forth but you know i think it comes back to that like some people feel that, quote unquote, the culture of poverty argument, whether it's about culture or is it about calling certain things pathological, like some people feel like it, it undercuts any kind of like movement to address these structural inequalities. I mean, even like reading right. some of the quotes and the comments mm-hmm. in the New York Times article, like people get really upset um, and all sorts of claims about, well, you know, these are just like white researchers, you know, trying to uh, hang out in the ghetto for a couple of days and pretend like they're black, you know, like are trying to mystify, you know, the struggles of people of color. And like, wow, these are pretty harsh claims, you know, so it you do kind of sense that, of course, these are important debates to have. But I, I kind of started to buy in that like, well, maybe there is a subtle yet pretty clear line that sociologists should adhere to when they're doing this type of ethnography. And one of those lines is that you should be contrasting yourself somehow against the culture of poverty. And if that's the case, then I think that would, I mean, not that I think that our scholarship is, is not worthwhile doing, but I feel if, if that is the case and it, it is censoring certain types of projects, then it, it shouldn't be. Right. Well, I think the, the sociological line right now, which I think a lot of ethnographers and inequality scholars and established and they kind of got over the culture of poverty debates was, you know, it, it is not problematic to expect that poor people, it, no, no matter the, the ethnicity, the geography, whatever it might be, will share certain cultural practices and cultural values. But those cultural practices and values are A, not pathological, and B, are related in intricate ways to structural factors. But what about if there are behaviors that prevent somebody from quote-unquote doing better there there certainly are behaviors that prevent people from doing better it's just that they're not pathological and that's the real debate about the culture of poverty is it was always cast as pathological right right no i mean i think you're making a really good point i mean i'm i'm trying and i'm trying you're to pick, trying to, to follow up on on what i think is no 
there I mean, there was a there was a blog post I read on the Atlantic. Um, Is it Todd? I can't remember the guy's name. Coats? Yes, that that's yes. But he was talking about how like in in one con in some contexts, right? The kinds of behavior that is not pathological but is rewarded, right? Is um, and it's like that's the easy path to getting by is behaving in a certain way that is dysfunctional when you're trying to, you know, get a job or, you know, thrive in, right. in college or whatever, right? And there's a very nuanced way of putting that that's important to communicate to people. And then there's the very sort of like cheap, not very articulate way of putting that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, Chris, sort you of, what, I'm, what I'm trying to Chris, get at here? Do you remember that? Really... Who wrote In Search of Respect? Do you, do you know who that is? Uh, uh, Philip, I believe it's pronounced Borghese. It could be bourgeois. I don't know how to pronounce Borghese. it. Borghese, okay. I remember there was a chapter there called like something going legit, and it speaks to what John just mentioned, like people leaving prisons and then having a hard time keeping a job um because of like their you know what we would call your ability to manage anger like you know the things that hadn't made them survive in the streets were no longer conducive to the quote-unquote work environment that they're trying to transition into sure. um, and so there was this like you know negotiating respect which is very important which can get you killed you know you, you know right. if people feel like they can take you down not to like exoticize the street in this example but if you know i saw i saw the um the wire i know what it's about <laughs> you get it. i get the wire we've talked i've seen it. colors like six times <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know when you i watch friday wait a second <laughs> you can't let somebody disrespect you i mean like so basically that's i remember reading that and then thinking about well that makes that makes sense like here's a set of skills and, and behaviors that are adaptive in one environment and then are not adaptive in a different environment but one could take that and just say yep these people need to just to change their behavior like the problem is that these guys just don't have the right skills and um they just need to learn how to manage their anger which is not necessarily what his point was um because if you teach these people these skills the good chances that they're going to get killed in the streets you know like if they don't well, protect themselves so so the point is that there are certain there's a certain kind of culture that is adaptive when you have structural inequality, right? And you can talk about it as change the culture, but at the end of the day, if you don't change the conditions in which that culture is adaptive, if in some senses, and obviously very much not so in others, you're going to have that Who's problem. the communist now, was that, John? Was that articulate? <laughs> you? It was a very materialist explanation of an understanding of culture. No, I, I dig the materialism. It's okay. The notion we were just talking about. John, could you say what you said again? <laughs> oh, geez, it took so much energy. Um, the idea that you have culture that causes problems, right? It's it's this culture of poverty, right? Where certain kinds of skills that uh, are, are adaptive in some environments that serve to sort of, on the one hand, let people in, you know, uh, situations of poverty survive and get by, but at the same time sort of keep them there paradoxically too, right? And the point is it's not 
a matter of just changing the culture. It's not a, you know, just look, change your attitude, change your values, act a different way. That's, that's not going to fix it because there are structural factors that make that behavior adaptive and play off of that paradoxical, um, what's adaptive for you as a, in this environment actually sure, fits you in that, that environment sense. too. No, no, you're, I'm not no, being that very sense. articulate there about this. Two, this making sense. Um, problems I think that brings up. The first is the problem of groupness and the second is the problem of I, this. I have, I don't have a good term for the second problem, but it's that when, when people start to refer to this, you know, the special set of skills that makes one, you know, uh, be able to survive in, in a ghetto or something like that. The assumption is that those are the only skills that that person has, right. which can be true, but is not necessarily true. Because there's also, again, from urban ethnography, this notion of code switching, right? And that you can you can kind of situationally pick how you present yourself, how you speak, and so on and so forth. In fact, a lot of anti-poverty programs in the last 10 years or so, maybe less than that, have have tried to address that specifically by essentially teaching cultural capital to people who otherwise had no institutional channel to learn it. So, you know, here's how you dress and act in a corporate environment. Here are the things people will expect you to know about and so on and so forth. It, it, it runs into problems of possibly coming off as as demeaning. But I, I, as far as I know, the results have been OK. And, and I generally think it, it, it sounds like a good idea. The, the problem of groupness is then assuming from that that all the people who have those traits, th th those behaviors, values, whatever it is, are a unified group. Which is a problem that cuts through a lot more areas in sociology, but you know, here's kind of an example from my uh, own research because I was writing about this uh, today. Because you know, I interviewed all those foster care kids coming out of the foster care system, and you know, I I hung out with them as they went to these life skills groups sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the groups was how to get a job, and one of the groups was managing your um, your checkbook. And uh, I attended these classes with them, and. I remember sitting there and and thinking, I don't even manage, I don't even balance my checkbook, <laughs> you know. Right. And the thing that the difference between me and this, you know, African American kid who's coming out of a state-run system, is not the fact that I is it, the balancing the checkbook is really not the thing that makes us different, <laughs> you know. There's all <laughs> sorts of other things that have made us different to have these different life trajectories, you know. Nonetheless. Maybe, you know, balancing his checkbook can nonetheless be helpful for him. Or maybe another example was these interview skills that they were giving the kids, like how to present yourself, this kind of cultural capital. And I remember like taking notes down. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's a good idea. I should make eye contact and <laughs> do a firm handshake. I never do that. And um, And again, I was thinking like that's really not what's the difference between where I'm at and where this kid is at. In a way, I, I, when I first started writing about it, I was like very critical. I was like, well, look at these life skill groups that these kids attend. It, it's all about individualizing their, their, their current state. And I'm like, you know, they're an underprivileged group, poor, with no family resources and no cultural capital, no social capital. That's really the structural condition that's keeping them behind. Nonetheless, learning how to like go to a job interview and, and make eye contact and shake your hand that's also not a necessarily a bad thing so right. it, like I, i've been kind of dealing with this issue as i'm writing about it because on one hand i'm like being very critical of the the programs that they're going but the kids love going to these programs because it gave them a a feeling that they have some agency in their lives and that they can actually be and do something different 
and you know, at first I was like, oh, this is just some Foucauldian, you know, power trip, you know, that they're making the subject feel like they have agency when they really don't. And and now I'm kind of moving away from that because, you know, some of the kids did get jobs. <laughs> I I think yeah, I think part of it is it's um it's true that what separates you from those kids aren't necessarily those specific things, but that you or I or any of the four of us don't have to worry about those things and can still get away with maybe even not having those. Right. So I, I'm reminded of the, yeah, I'm reminded of the discussion we had a few weeks ago about male privilege in the classroom as an instructor, you know, like I can sort of show up to class wearing whatever I want, you know, within reason. Um, <laughs> but I don't have to go out of my way to dress up and um, like go out of my way to impress upon students that, when I stand up in front of the room, you listen and I'm, I'm, I'm the leader of the classroom. Right. But you talk to a lot of, you know, especially first time early, uh, graduate student, female teachers, and they don't get that. Like you don't get that respect out of the box. So you have to learn more about presentation of self and how to manage your, um, presentation in front of the class to overcome that hurdle. And I think it's sort of the same thing. Like, okay, so if Arturo walks into an interview and doesn't say the exact right thing or necessarily shake hands the right way or whatever. People sort of overlook it because Arturo is this, you know, I'm, I don't want to like, compliment don't. you too much here. But, you know, you're, <laughs> you get right. the benefit of the doubt is what I'm saying. Um, so, I, don't, I mean, I think there's a lot of that at work, too. But you're right in that, you know, if we just do that a lot, you know, if we just give that those experiences yeah. to every poor person in America, um, it's not like... Right. Well, especially, I mean, especially in this job market, I mean, I almost felt that like this agency was giving these kids this impression that it's, I mean, it is all on them to a certain degree, but the reason why they're struggling is not really their fault. (laughs) It's like the housing markets crashed, you know, there's just a short supply of like low skilled labor out there. Um, And it's these handshakes and making eye contact won't change those facts i mean it's it doesn't hurt you know but so like i i've always felt or i used to feel like as a job as a sociologist is to emphasize the social and structural reasons because everybody else is emphasizing the individualistic one but i feel like i have to be somewhat honest too and say or not honest but i also have to you know like report what i think is also going on in the field which is I don't think it's hurting them necessarily that much either. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a certain there's a political message that I feel sometimes is 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 advocated through these programs that it's all about the kids becoming, you know, pulling themselves up by the bootstraps kind of an argument. Um but at the same time it's maybe that message does help them as individuals, you know, it makes them feel like they yeah. have agency. And like, if we were uh, if we were more cognizant of the fact that these are are good life skills that anyone might need to know about we would and and if it were less um, reliant on the notion of privilege you know similar kind of courses can be taught for a variety of different people it's it always gets put on typically ethnic minorities Mm -hmm. where this is stuff that they need to learn right but that's that's not necessarily true and there's a whole you know we were just talking about how we can't balance our checkbooks no, I was taking notes, man. I was like, yeah. I'm learning a lot of stuff here. But, you know, think about people who've grown up mainly rural and, and now are in urban environments. There's a lot of stuff you have to get used to relatively quickly. The, You know, a lot of groups used to have organizations that took care of that and they don't really exist anymore or they're stigmatized. But but it's good stuff to know. 
similar if, if it's reversed and no one ever thinks about the reverse that if urban people move to rural surroundings there's there's different codes that you have to follow there the different things you have to deal with you know to bring my research into it you know everyone talks about how people of color especially poor people of color generally have to quote unquote act white if they want to operate in, in you know professional circumstances and so on and so forth which is a problematic way to say it but that's the way a lot of people talk about it but a lot of people especially privileged white people spend an enormous amount of time trying to learn how to act something else that's not white and it's motivated by the same concerns the same concerns how like i don't quite follow that part of the argument mm-hmm. they feel like they need to be able to competently operate in particular social circumstances that in order to get by and they also feel that it would be a problem for them to reveal their backgrounds i see okay i get you except the background now is you know upper middle class suburbanite found a uh, sort of a overview blog post on uh, the neuroanthropology blog on the uh, public library of science blogs which is kind of a a cool site Um, but they're pointing to a a thing on NPR where they talk to Sudhir Venkatesh and he's talking about that inner city poverty is actually declining and you know we were talking we've been sort of talking about poverty and talking about urban areas interchangeably here so uh, it might be interesting to interject that you know that that in, in you know rural isolated areas are on the right. poverty's on the rise in these areas. So he cites West Virginia has the second highest poverty rate of any state, almost twenty so, percent. Oh, suburbs, um, and places and outside, outside not suburbs. suburbs. Oh, I hate it when suburbs. Sorry, it's just a sticking point, but I'm going to get in there because that's my least favorite thing that sociologists do is that there's only cities and suburbs. Okay, like, and I think that's why we ignore rural poverty so much because we don't. Like sociologists don't conceive of there being a space that's not a city or a suburb or so I've noticed in my own jaded view of it, but I don't want to get in on this too much or maybe I do. Um, but I think it's because I always talk about this in my like intro classes when I talk about poverty, right? That, you know, statistically poverty is like a white phenomenon. And I think statistically though, my numbers are pretty old. So I should probably shouldn't quote this, but close to a rural phenomenon, um, but also not, not explicitly or maybe not even majority anymore like i said my numbers are old but a very very much a rural phenomenon as well but we like social programs um or scholarship on it or all these things tend to ignore rural poverty so much and and also i think that's where you get a lot of these culture of poverty arguments or these kind of things completely ignoring like the whole argument of what is the culture of poverty and what does it mark what kind of skill sets are involved in that completely is completely not applicable to rural poverty um maybe not completely but very very different than rural poverty but then we talk about that when we talk about how do we solve property poverty and how do we deal with poverty while leaving out this gigantic chunk of poverty i don't know if it's because we don't associate white people with poverty or if because we so strictly associate poverty with the city-based phenomenon well, um, I, or I, because i'd argue sociologists I, don't understand i i there's a I think there's a really interesting racial angle uh, to that, though, because when we talk about um, culture of poverty, everyone sort of um, uh, sort of mentally jumps to this image of poor yeah. black inner city kids, right? But if all of a sudden you start thinking about, you know, poor white kids in small town America, 
um, and you start talking about the culture of poverty and their cultures to blame, well, that becomes a lot more, uh, that requires much more self-criticism on the part of much of America, right? Um, I mean, after all, this is the real America, right? This is the heartland, right? I mean, you know, it, it, it all of a sudden becomes uh, shifts from what's wrong with them to, you know, what's wrong with us. I think, it, you know, psychologically, that's how a lot of, of people think about it. And that's that's a much more difficult thing to bring up, I think. I don't know. Maybe. I was going to say, like, I don't know if Jesse's going to have to, like, educate me on this regard, because I, I don't really know much about rural poverty. But, you know, like Wilson, when he came out with, like, the book in the eighties, a truly disadvantaged. Like he seems to, at that time he was making this, this kind of argument that's saying like, you know, often white liberals point to the fact that there's more white, poor white people than there are black poor people. And the problem with that argument is that it ignores that there's a high, there's a new underclass in the United States that is characterized by this high concentration of like really poor, uh, African-Americans who reflect this like exodus of middle class blacks out of these centers and so it's not even yet that there's poor people but there's like a particular social condition that he was describing where like you know people who are the typical leaders in your neighborhood the institutions of neighborhoods are are breaking down so he like depicts this like you know this not wasteland but you know, uh, uh, neighborhoods that have lost function in a way, in a kind of very Durkheimian sense. You know, the breakdown of community functions and the breakdown of social control, and and I don't know if like this, if like the rural, poor rural have the same kind of conditionality that people associate with with like a, the black poor urban underclass. I mean, I, I don't know if like poverty in the suburban areas or poverty in the rural areas still have this like truly disadvantaged sociality that I think Wilson was drawing at because he was trying to say like, you know, the problem with this argument saying that there's more poor white people, that's true, but it ignores this like particular issue of concentration in like very specific neighborhoods in Chicago and New York and the Bay area. Um, and these places are like, you know, high number of single parents, high number of incarceration, high number. So I, do you think that or do you think, Jesse, that like it's just been ignored as an issue to talk about rural poverty in the same manner? Yes and no being the weak uh, academic answer. Um, I mean, I don't know that it's a zero sum game that like talking about rural poverty necessitates us not discussing concentrated disadvantage in the cities. But I mean, a lot of those sort of points you're making about the sort of, you know, urban underclass or whatever term is in vogue, it, it could, you could make the same arguments about rural concentrations of poverty, right, too, right? Like there's clearly uh, a fleeing middle class from rural areas of poverty, right? Clearly breakdowns in sort of traditional community forms of order. Um, you can look at the whole, you know, methamphetamine problem, uh, right. uh, sort of similar drug explosion, right? I mean, it's, I think, I mean, I don't mean to oversimplify, but I think a lot of people still have a kind of bucolic view of the country and the city's always been seen as kind of like oppressive and that sort of thing. So like poverty in the like rural areas, just, I don't know, maybe it's just from the people I talk to and I'm talking to the wrong people, but many people seem to just sort of have this vision of like, well, it's not as 
bad out in the country, right? Like, I don't know if it's just because you have fresh air and you can run around or something. Well, I mean, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's an argument to me that just because you're poor doesn't mean that you're you don't have a community or that you're necessarily, you know, have a bad life. I mean, I think you don't want to romanticize the poor at the same hand, but like, you know, what what Wilson was saying is like. You know, there's inequality and there's issues of poverty, and then there's the underclass. And like, these are really, you know, different types of neighborhoods that are characteristically different. So I feel like he was saying, like, almost explicitly, like these are kind of pathological communities. Not that the people are pathological, but but the that community. was the that was the point on which Wilson took the most criticism for pretty much his entire career. It wasn't just taken on on his work that there that the underclass was a real pathological phenomena. That's another point at which the culture of poverty debate was motivated to, to figure out ways around that, to, to get rid of the notion of pathology. And I mean, Wilson will, I mean, every book he writes, he's written since then is negotiates with that because he's, he's kind of ground zero for that debate. We should have him on the podcast. <laughs> we should. <laughs> Send him a quick note. <laughs> I mean, the thing I was going to say, just thinking about, like, like I went to um, K-State in Manhattan, Kansas. The little right? Apple. Small, t- small college town, middle of Kansas, right? The Little Apple, that's, that's believe it or not, that's what they call it. And, um, you know, I, a lot of my friends were all from really small towns that I'd never heard of prior to going to K-State. And as far as I know, not one of them still lives there. Like, they all live. Yeah, that was the point I was going to make, too. Just the... Yeah. The There's flight a, of people a brain drain. from America, yeah, 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 and you know, I, you know, I don't know. On the one hand, I don't know what that means if that many of them are actually able to leave and are getting out, and you know, I, I don't know, but it, it's clearly different. I mean, I don't think you can have this like competition where, oh well, poor white kids in rural areas have it just as hard. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of silly. Um, but at the same time, you know, you know, a lot of these small towns, like they, they really are struggling. And it's, and it's every bit as much of a structural problem of living in a, you know, small town as it is, you know, living in a poor inner city area. And, you know, you can't just blame the culture either, you know, there it's, you know, obviously it's a different version, but it's almost the same structural factors in the sense that like a lot of what has led to the, you know, urban concentrated poverty has been the move of, um, you know, factories from inner city industrial areas to, you know, first to the Rust Belt and overseas and that sort of thing. Whereas in rural America, it's coming from, uh, you know, corporate agribusiness like Monsanto and those sort of things gobbling up all like small farms that you could possibly make a family living at and turning it, you know, again, much the same into a small elite of managers and, and upper management who make money and then incredibly low paid field work kind of things. Right. So anyway, and again, but uh, clearly, as John says, like, it's stupid to, like, horse race it and say, like, oh, this one's more important or something. But I I just feel like, and again, it might just be that I'm reading the wrong things or something. But I feel like in these discussions of poverty or in this thing like that, and maybe it's just how much I dislike the kind of connotations of the culture of poverty. But these these arguments about poverty ignore, like, large sections of people in poverty. I don't know. I guess maybe I'm. I'm either arguing for more specificity or for tearing the whole thing down. I can't figure it out yet. Well, the culture of poverty in specific has always been about poor people of color because that's that's the origin of the debate. And I think in general, you're right. There is 
not enough uh, could be both not enough coverage of rural poverty and not enough coverage of rural poverty that makes it into the mainstream either of the national consciousness or of sociology in general and i think the policy considerations coming off of that yeah i think you're right what works in 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 the inner city is not going to work in rural whatever so yeah Here, here's a thought tell me tell me what you guys think of this i think part of the problem is the term culture and i don't want to get into a discussion uh, uh, of what culture means we tried that a few episodes back and i cut it all out no one will um, ever hear this conversation was, <laughs> i liked it i liked to anyway anyway but but i i mean i'm thinking i think part of the problem is this idea of culture because as Chris was describing earlier, a lot of it is really sort of general principles about how when you have certain kinds of structural arrangements in society where there is sort of a like locked in segment of the population that is poor, like by design, you know, not necessarily like, well, maybe, yeah, explicit design in some cases. Um, there are certain kinds of behaviors and kinds of strategies that make sense paradoxically helping and also hurting people in those situations. So it's like a culture of poverty really seems like the wrong term when maybe it may be like the social psychology of poverty or something. Um, seems like a more, all of a sudden when you say that, it sounds more of a general thing as opposed to culture, which seems to just bring so much baggage in, in terms of people reading what they want and yeah. what you mean by culture. Well, because there's this whole like, you know, like whiteness as the default right. thing in the U.S. too, where when you talk about the culture of poverty and you're thinking about poor white people, well, culture, me, well, we don't have culture, right? So <laughs> it must yeah. be their culture. That's the problem. We're just us, you know. Um, but really what it's about is this social psychology of poverty, how when you're an individual in this particular, in a, in a particular situation, um, you know, there are certain behaviors that are very difficult for you to to learn and acquire and practice because of your environment, you know, sort of selecting against those, those things, even if those are the very things that you need to be learning and doing to get out of your situation and improve yourself. Yeah, sure. Does that makes sense. You have just solved the culture of poverty debate. <laughs> I think let's, so. I think we can, let's see. Let's 10, quick call the time, uh, New York times. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, we'll get this, we'll get this conversation. I think in full printed up. <laughs>